Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. We'll begin reading from, well, let's just do verse 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Maybe go to our God and ask for his blessings in the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are victorious, that our Lord Jesus is the triumphant king, and that he is the one who willingly shares with us his gifts. And Father, we thank you for the gifts to your church of your saints, that we who are your people would be diligent and faithful in our service to you, exercising these gifts for the equipping of the saints for the building up of your people. Father, we thank you that you are infinite in wisdom, that you know what it is that we need, and that you give generously, Father, to each one. Father, we pray for your people, that there would be a desire, that there would be a diligence, that there would be a care for others, a concern for others, and not merely our own. Father, we pray for the maturity of the church, for her growth and well-being, for her to be able to see past her nose, to look at the needs of others and desire to meet them with the good news of the gospel. Father, we acknowledge also that you delight when there is kindness and love shown. We pray, Father, for your people to be mindful of these matters. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that indeed is our eternal hope. We pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Children, how many of you like to receive gifts? Is it a good thing that you receive gifts? As you grow, you come to realize that receiving gifts is good, but with maturity, you come to see that giving gifts is even better. It is far blessed, far more blessed to give than to receive. It's only by faith that we come to understand this. In the world, we understand taking, right? We, we understand, I'm going to take everything that I can get. It's only in Christ, as he changes your heart, that you say, and you start to think, you know what? I was once a taker, but now I realize The Lord has called me that I would be a giver. I would be a giver of good gifts. Do you realize that certain people have gifts? And one of these gifts is being able to give good gifts to people, right? So I realize how much I fail in that because oftentimes I have gifts come back to me, right? They refuse. They're giving, hey, we're returning this to you. And I realize, oh boy, I, I don't have that gift. So you have good gifts. And you have memorable ones, right? And the memorable ones, well, you collect them until perhaps the end of the year you have this white elephant gift exchange where Americans try to 
do what they can to get rid of the gifts that they don't want. I could tell you stories about some of these horrendous gifts that still stick in my mind, but I won't bore you with those. Here we think about this passage that we have before us, Ephesians chapter 4. We have the transition from all the things that the Apostle Paul described. This is what the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit has done on behalf of sinners so that you might be redeemed, so that every advantage that you think you lack in this world, he has given you in the spiritual and the heavenly places, that you lack no good thing, that he has given you an exceedingly great hope that no one should say after reading Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we say, you know what, God, you haven't done enough for me. If, if we're thinking that, then we have not read or we have not understood the first three chapters of Ephesians. We ought to say, Lord, you then are worthy of our worship, our obedience. That we ought to pay homage to you every waking moment, every sleeping moment of our lives. And then, not only that, for all eternity, that we would continue to pay homage to you. Forever and ever and ever. And here, in Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 4 through 6, we have that transition where the, in the indicatives, what God has done for you, we transition to the imperatives. How then should you live for this God? Because you cannot live the same way. Christianity is not merely about believing the right things. You know what? So long as I, I believe all the right doctrines and I can criticize and insult all the people who don't believe the, the greatness of my doctrine, then I'm a Christian. No, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. It means you're a bigot. It, it, means, it means you're a Pharisee. This Ephesians 4 through 6 how you live is evidence that you are in Christ. And unless you're living as Christ commanded, you are, you are not a Christian. So here we see in this great truth, in this passage, the Lord Jesus, in his grace, gave spiritual gifts to every Christian at his triumphant ascension. The Lord Jesus, in his grace, gave spiritual gifts to every Christian at his triumphant ascension. We'll look at this in three points. The first, the news of Christ's gift giving. The second, the occasion of Christ's gift giving. And third, the reason for Christ's gift giving. So the first point, the news of Christ's gift giving in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here, the Apostle Paul, starting in Ephesians 4, has given instruction to keep, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that unity is not something that Christians must obtain and achieve, but rather it's something that Jesus has established for us, for his people through the Holy Spirit. And that the command that you and I have received is that we ought to be eager to keep it, eager to preserve the unity of the spirit. Here, this is the diligent maintenance for yourself, for myself of personal humility. You want to see where unity breaks down? It's when we are proud. We insist in our own ways. You must do what I want you to do. This is the beginning of unity breaking down. Personal humility. You know what? It's not so much me trying to demand you to do what I want you to do, right? When you think about, okay, well, what are the leaders of the church trying to get God's people to do, right? And is that, is that necessarily for my profit? Right here, here I'm thinking, well, I don't think Wayne and I are the type here that are telling you, we, 
we want to do you to do things for our profit. No, we're trying to get you to do things as God has commanded. Here we think about personal humility. We think about gentleness, right? Gentleness and meekness in, an, in interactions with others. At times there, there might be a need for firmness, right? But gentleness and meekness should describe our interactions with others. That there ought to be patience, especially when we're wronged or misunderstood. And there ought to be forbearance and love. That these are the things, these are the characteristics that, that bring us towards unity. That, that enable, that uh, keep unity. And here in verse 7, sections, uh, verses 7 through 10, he's, as he's continuing talking about unity, he then talks about diversity. Right? And, and people might wonder, hey, wait a minute. You're talking about keeping, maintaining unity. Well, isn't diversity the opposite? No. It's not. It's not at all the opposite. In fact, diversity that Jesus gives is for the sake of keeping and maintaining that unity. Here, we think about how the world doesn't understand unity. What they think about is, is uniformity. Everyone's the same, right? Everyone has the same thing. Everyone is the same. But here, you think about that applied to the concept of a human body. So you think about human body, one body, many parts. Well, you can't have 50 hearts. There's only one. You can't have 50 hands, right? There's only two. So here we understand that there is diversity in a human body just as there is diversity in a, a body of Christ. Again, here we see that there is unity in diversity as there should be, not uniformity. Rather, for there to be unity, God, God gives uh, a diversity of gifts, and this is working towards the keeping of unity. Here we see in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Christ in his grace gives gifts to people. He gives gifts to people out of his grace. When we think about gifts, sometimes there is the negative effect as gifts are given. For example, there is no requirement in gift giving that you can't say that you're obligated to give someone a gift. So on some occasion, not a birthday, uh, not Christmas, or not any special occasion, someone gives you a gift, but he doesn't give your brother or your sister a gift. Well, then all kinds of questions are asked, why, why did you do this? And then suddenly your siblings are up in arms, angry with you that you received a gift. They shouldn't be. A, a gift, there's, there's no obligation to give a gift. And at times, this may be what happens within the church. It shouldn't be. There's a diversity of gifts. And this is Christ manifesting his grace, his kindness, his mercy to his people. It also says here in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. So it's emphatically not the case that Christ gives some Christians spiritual gifts, but he doesn't give them to others. No, that's completely false. To each one of us. Everyone who is a Christian, who is in Christ, receives some gift, at least one, sometimes more. Met all kinds of people who, who are very gifted. They have more than one gift. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, we have the same similar or similar statement. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Here we have the concept of a steward. Right? The concept of a steward is very simple. All right? Very simple. If it's your home and uh, you had a late dinner, there's nothing wrong with you saying, all right, I'm going to leave this mess from kitchen, from uh, dishes and pans and leftover food. I'm going to leave this out until tomorrow. Okay? And I'll clean it up tomorrow. That's perfectly fine because you're the owner. But if you're sharing the house with someone else, you're a guest of someone else's home, you absolutely may not do that. You would be gone the next morning. <laughs> you would be thrown out because you are merely, it, it's, you're sharing. It's, it's a steward, right? So someone has allowed you into their home. So also, you think about the spiritual gifts. As a steward, right, we're, we're told to manage what God has given us. We're not the owners of the spiritual gifts that we have. We are stewards. And a steward of all things is required, hey, what have you done with what God has entrusted to you? We must give an account. An owner doesn't have to give an account. And just so you understand, regarding your estate, you owe nothing. I own nothing. There's nothing that we have that is, that is our own. We can't say, hey, these are my children. This is my money. Everything that you have belongs to God. He claims all of it. The, the cattle on a thousand hills is all his. Elon Musk's money all belongs to God. And, and whether or not he's a Christian is immaterial. He owns everything. He also owns your spiritual gift. And he commands you to be faithful and diligent with it. You see also here that it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Meaning that you look at the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. This gift giving is in very much the same way as how God distributes material wealth and other types of goods and his blessings. There's a tendency to start casting diagonal glances saying, God, you know, I question your wisdom that you gave this person these things, but you didn't give these things to me. First off, when you start to make those statements, let me help you, stop them. Just when you start saying to stop them right there and just repent. Spit them out of your mouth and stop them because this is, it never goes anywhere good, right? God is infinite in wisdom. He's exceedingly generous. He doesn't shortchange his people. He doesn't shortchange his people regarding the earthly temporal blessings, nor does he shortchange his people regarding spiritual blessings or, or eternal blessings. But it's, a, it's of the same category that according to the measure of Christ's gift, God gives material blessings, he gives spiritual gifts. It's as he sees fit. As he sees fit. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here, this is according to the measure of Christ's gift. He sees fit. He gives. He gives according to his wisdom. He gives according to his grace. Perhaps some of you are wondering, how do you discern your spiritual gifts? 
So you and others, meaning as they witness you, you and others discern your spiritual gift or gifts when you attempt to exercise them. When you attempt to exercise them. So this requires, first, that you are active in serving the Lord. And in serving the Lord, it is impossible to serve the Lord without also serving your fellow man. This requires that you put yourself in a position of vulnerability. Okay, but You have to put yourself in a position of vulnerability because it means that you may fail in your attempt. Okay, You may fail in your attempt. And you do not know how others respond. This is part of service, is that you do something for the benefit of another. Uh, and for the attempt to do such service, you may find out, you know what? I failed miserably. I failed miserably several times. And others may come to the conclusion, you know what? This isn't your spiritual gift. Here I have a pastor friend who, who uh, is rather creative. Someone came to him and said to him, I believe I have the gift of teaching. He says, okay. We'll put those to the test. And he gave him certain instances. And, um, and the pastor observed. Uh, he had his opinion, but he asked others in the congregation, well, what do you think of this? And they, they were all united. So, so then he told this man, you know, brother, none of us think that you have the gift of teaching. And he says, no, I, I, I'm sure that I do. And he says, okay, all right, fine, you're right. You have the gift of teaching. Just none of us have the gift of learning from you. That's all. So here, we, we think about how trusting in the Lord comes in and exercising your spiritual gift. It takes a leap. It takes trusting in God. It takes effort. It takes a willingness to fail. It takes a willingness to be rejected and ignored. It takes a willingness, perhaps, uh, uh, not to be thanked for it. But that's part of service. That's part of being a Christian. So this is the first point, the news of Christ's gift-giving. We have the second point, the occasion of Christ's gift-giving in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here we have a, a quote from Psalm 68, which is clearly a messianic psalm. And what comes to mind as we read verses 18 and following in Psalm 68 is we have uh, the description of a triumph. And a triumph, what that is, is a celebration of a military victory. That not only do we look at the description here, but we think also of the historic accounts of Rome that there were, sev there were several hundred triumphs. And these were celebrations. They were actually religious ceremonies. These were acts of worship. If I describe them to you, Right? So it had to be a, a significant victory uh, on the part of Rome against an enemy. And the, the person being honored would be a general, a general who led uh, the Roman troops to victory. At the front would be the Roman general riding on a chariot drawn by four horses. And right behind him would be uh, the general's uh, high-ranking officers and his troops. And then behind them would, would be prisoners or captives of war, the, the representatives among the defeated. So the nation they conquered, 
that typically they would get the biggest and the strongest, the healthiest ones, and say, hey, see how great, see how huge these people are, right? And behind them would be the bulls that they would sacrifice to Jupiter. And this is where we say this is an act of worship. When, when you think about these nations, pagan nations, right? When one nation defeats another, it's invariably a, a view about religion. Our God was greater than your God. So uh, bulls are sacrificed to Jupiter. And very common, very common that these prisoners, these captives, these prisoners of war in this triumphal procession most often would be executed along with the, the sacrifice of these bulls. They, they would be slain there. And here, the, the, most, the most interesting thing about these Roman triumphs was that standing right behind the general, as he's riding on this chariot, that even, even pagans would have this. They would put a slave right behind the general. He's holding a golden crown over the head of the general. But his job, besides to hold that golden crown, more importantly, was to whisper in the general's ear and say, you are only a man. You are immortal. You are only a man. And he was his job throughout this, this triumphal procession. It could, it could have been a day long. It could have been two days long. But his job was to repeat that. You're only immortal. You're only immortal. You're only a man. Don't forget that. You're only a man. And for this to say, hey, they didn't want this triumph to go to the general's head. Here, <clears throat> we think about how in Psalm 68, verse 18 and following, that the Lord Jesus is in his triumph. Here, Jesus led a host of captives, that is, his people, that instead of having the conquered in his train, these, these are the ones who were defeated and I will then execute them. There's some completely different standard, different method that Jesus has. Once his enemies, that we, we are part of his captive train, once his enemies, <clears throat> but now we have, we have been defeated by our Lord Jesus and we have been set free. So in, instead of having prisoners that he executes, he has captives. And we're told that he led captivity captive, meaning he defeated captivity itself. He broke the chains of your bondage to sin and death. Do you understand that? He, Jesus, who is victorious, breaks your chains of bondage to set you free, to set you free from your sins. Is this not good news to you? So the question is, would you want to continue in those sins? Here Jesus displays his conquests in his triumph by showing the wonders of his grace. So instead of executing the prisoners that he defeated, he gives them away. He gives them away as in, hey, you look at the very next verse in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, meaning that those whom he has conquered... He then gives away so that they might be used for the advancement of Christ's church and for his glory. Here, we think about one of the major questions, doctrinal exegetical questions. This section, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, has two significant questions that come up, right? Of, of hey, let's not get distracted by them, but we do have to answer them. 
If you notice there, Psalm 68, verse 18 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. But we see that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So perhaps that question comes up for you. You notice there's a difference. Was this merely Apostle Paul uh, being rather careless in his work as a writer? No, I don't think so at all. Here, you think about, you think about how there's no error. There's no error in the scriptures. The simplest explanation is that the triumphant general receives gifts from men. As he conquers them, uh, other nations, uh, people give tribute to a conquering general. And for, for the secular generals, you would think that many of these gifts and, and these uh, possessions he keeps for himself, right? That's his right as a, as a general. He keeps it for himself. And, and for some, he, he probably would give to his high-ranking officers, right? And what's, what's called a trickle-down effect, right? Trickle-down effect. And, and Jesus is one who receives these gifts as the conquering general, but in his exceeding generosity and his grace, he gives these spoils to his conquests. Meaning that, yes, Jesus is one who receives gifts from men, but he doesn't just receive and keep it for himself. He gives gifts to men. So there is a receiving, but there's also a giving. He doesn't keep for his own. He willingly shares with his people. Christ is the one who gives to his people spiritual gifts. But you understand, even in this passage, we see that the gifts are not merely spiritual gifts. They're actually the people themselves. The Apostle Paul was a gift to the church, if anything. <clears throat> he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. So Jesus is one who gives gifts, but he also is one who gives these gifts in people to the church. That all of you who are in Christ are gifts to the church in your service of him. Perhaps this question is lingering, coming up in your mind. So why should you use your spiritual gifts to serve others? Why would I want to do that? <laughs> Very simple answer. Because Christ, your Lord, commands it. And he has generously equipped you to do so. If that answer is not sufficient for you, no answer will be. Perhaps we can address some of the obstacles to exercising spiritual gifts. Well, you don't know what they are. Oh, we covered that earlier. In the first point, cover that earlier, discerning spiritual gifts. What if you're too busy? I hear that sometimes. I'm too busy. Oh, well, I interpret that for you. If you tell me you're too busy to, to exercise your spiritual gifts, then what you have is an issue of priority in your life. Incorrect priority. That the service of our Lord Jesus and his church is not high enough in your list of priorities. That's why you're too busy. You're saying, uh, I'm too busy because I have other priorities up top, and serving Jesus and his church are too far below. Similar situation if you're too tired, right? You've expended all your energy on other things that are the wrong priority. We should prioritize the serving of our Lord Jesus in exercising our spiritual gifts to serve others. So that's the second point, the occasion of Christ's gift giving. We have the third, the reason for Christ's gift giving in verses 9 and 10. 
in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Here, the Apostle Paul is reasoning, and perhaps he's anticipating this question that people might ask. Wait, wait a minute. If you're saying that Jesus ascended, right? So you, you take this verse, Psalm 68, verse 18, and you apply it to God. God the Son, the second person of the, second person of the Trinity. And the question is, wait a minute, how can God ascend? It's a significant question. How, how can God go higher, right? It's like, how can God learn? It's a similar concept. Can God learn anything? The answer is no, he can't. And it's not because he's dumb, it's because he can't possibly know anymore. He knows all things. For him to learn implies that there would be some type of uh, lack of, some kind of ignorance. This is why we need to learn. God doesn't need to learn. And how can he ascend? Well, it can only be true, the Apostle Paul reasons, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? So here he explains, ah, oh, your question about what, how, how can we say that Jesus ascended? It's because he descended first. And the New Testament explains that to us. Here, the second significant question that comes up in interpretation in this passage was, to where does Jesus descend? You see, in some versions, they try to push, they try to push uh, this interpretation in certain areas. So, was it to the lower regions of the earth, meaning to hell? Or was it to earth itself? Or was it Christ's descent at Pentecost when he gave the Holy Spirit to the church? Here we see in our ESV, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth? So here the ESV, I think, is getting it correct. It's not to the lower regions of the earth, meaning to hell. Uh, you think about the... the um, uh, Apostles' Creed, right, that many ministers, myself included, will take exception to that. We don't believe that Jesus descended into hell. The reason why is because when Jesus was talking to the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus didn't spend three days in hell. He suffered the death of the cross, the very wrath of God, but that day he was in paradise. He was at the Father's right hand. He didn't descend into hell. So also here, we ought to understand that Christ's descent was not to hell. His descent was to earth in his incarnation. The fact that he took upon himself human flesh. And the support of that is in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here, this is the oddity about Jesus, the great general, who is the triumphant king. The secular generals execute their conquered enemies at the end of the triumph. And if they said, you know what? I'm not going to execute you. I'm going to enslave you instead. That would have been understood as, hey, uh, I, I, I was spared my life 
and, and this is probably why the Greeks and the Romans had so many people who were considered slaves, because they, these nations went out conquering all kinds of people, and they got, brought them back, and they weren't executed. Here, we think about what Jesus does. Jesus has total victory. And he, but it doesn't begin with our death. It doesn't, it doesn't end with our death as, as those who were defeated. It began with his death, that his victory begins at the cross. We think about how we're told he, in Colossians that he triumphed over them at the cross. Meaning that at Christ's death on the cross, that wasn't his defeat. That was the beginning of his true victory. And his death continues, and his victory, I'm sorry, his victory continues on with his resurrection, his ascension, and his sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is unlike all the secular leaders. Those who lord it over others. They lord it over the masses and then insist to be called benefactors. Meaning those who, who confer blessings or, 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 or goods. Jesus, who is the giver of spiritual gifts, is exceedingly generous. And that, unlike any other conquering general, it's his death that started it all. It's not the death of the conquered. Do you believe in the majesty, the goodness, the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ? You realize that we deserved nothing better. What we deserved with death, what we deserved is condemnation, judgment. But what he willingly gives to sinners is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He gives gifts to you, his people, so that you would Bring this good news that you would be an effective servant of his. Here, we ought to think about how he uses the gifts of the church for the equipping of saints, right? For the comfort, for the maturity, right? Of, of his people. We think about his descent. That was him taking upon himself human flesh to be that perfect sacrifice. And you're called to believe it by faith. To trust in him. Trust not in yourselves, but trust in Jesus, who indeed is your only hope for righteousness. He is your only hope for forgiveness before the holy and just God. So embrace him. Trust in him. We think also about his ascent. Continuing in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus rightly ascends to the highest place. For he willingly, joyfully obeyed the Father. Scorning the shame of the cross. So that he might present you, his people, perfect and holy before the Father. Here in the latter part of verse 10, that he might fill all things. So this is not a spatial, it's not a, a volume matter. So he might fill all things. It's not a matter of space and volume. It has everything to do with authority and dominion. We heard a little bit about this earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here, with Christ as the head over all things to the church, he gives spiritual gifts and servants to his church for her advancement, for her maturity, and for her growth. That this is what you are called to work towards as you serve others in Jesus Christ. Here, I think about the matter of spiritual gifts. And as I come to meet people and understand them and see them serving, oftentimes what I'm, what I'm struck with is how I'm so far surpassed by others because of their gifts. Meaning as I look at others and I, I witness them at work serving God, serving our Lord Jesus. And I say, wow, this person has a gift and that I'm actually somewhat slighted or ashamed that I haven't done as this person has done. So that's the initial knee-jerk response. But after, after a moment of clarity, then I start to realize, no, wait a minute. Well, I need to be doing better in certain areas, all areas, right? I realized, no, no, wait a minute. God hasn't given any one person all the gifts. This is God's design, right? This is why we need such people in the church. And we come to a greater appreciation of the gifts that Jesus has given to others because it benefits the body, right? So when you see others serving and, and they, they put you to shame, it's because, hey, this person has been given a gift and it's for God's glory. And we ought to rejoice in that. Here, you and I ought to have diligence in exercising these gifts. It takes effort to expend yourself. But with it, there is reward and satisfaction. Here, I, I, give, you, I give you the warning. Don't expect to receive adequate thanks or appreciation. That simply goes with the territory of serving. This is a reminder that if you got all that you thought you earned, then you have no reward remaining for you in heaven, right? And there is great reward then, great satisfaction in seeing others blessed. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It requires for you and for me a change in your mentality. Sometimes people... People... Don't show up for worship. They don't show up for prayer meeting. Because they're thinking from the mentality, hey, what can I get out of coming to church? Meaning, how do I profit from coming to church? So when they don't show up, the thought is, hey, it's okay. I'm just foregoing whatever profit I would have had. You need to have a different mentality entirely. You need to think, what can you contribute to God's people at his church. This changes things because for you not to be here, for you not to be regular, means that others are lacking. Others are missing because of your absence. We ought to be asking the question, how can you serve others when you come instead of how can you be served? Our Lord Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May the Lord grant us this different mentality. How can you and I be those 
who are givers, those who are serving. These are the questions that we ought to be asking even as we come and we gather as God's people. May we go to our God together in prayer.